Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. Each and every one of my guests has highlighted something new to me about the condition, about life and about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis and when it did my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed life post-diagnosis. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. I'm sure that many, if not most people listening to my podcast, will be aware of the groundbreaking medical breakthroughs that have occurred in recent months. After decades of disappointments and failures, two new drugs have given us reason to hope. Both these immunotherapy drugs are tricky to pronounce, so forgive me if I trip up. They are, of course, lecanemab, the results of which were announced this spring, and then in July came donanemab which is shown to have slowed the decline in memory and cognition of people with early-stage Alzheimer's by up to 40%. This is significant. These drugs do not, like others before them, merely mask the symptoms of Alzheimer's, which accounts for over 60% of all dementia cases. They modify the disease itself. They bind to the amyloid plaque that builds up in the brains of those with Alzheimer's, triggering the body's own immune cells to remove the destructive plaque. My guest today knows much more about these promising drugs than I do. Dr. Richard Oakley, the Alzheimer's Society's Associate Director of Research, has described the arrival of donanemab as a turning point in the fight against the disease. Unlike some newspapers and media outlets that shall remain nameless, the Alzheimer's Society doesn't normally go in for hyperbole or overblown rhetoric when it comes to what some might describe as miracle drugs. So Dr Oakley's words are worth listening to. And he says that treatments like donanemab are the first steps towards a future where Alzheimer's could be considered a long-term condition alongside diabetes or asthma. People may have to live with it but they could have treatments allowing them to manage their symptoms and continue to live fulfilled lives. This is music to my ears. And as he and I talk today, I'd like to hear more from him about who exactly out of the 850,000 people living with Alzheimer's, these drugs will help. When they might be available to them, what they will cost, any side effects they may have, and crucially, whether the NHS in its current state will be able to deliver them to those they would most benefit. But first, Richard, I'd like to hear a little about you. I know that you are a chemist by training and that you were head of research for Cancer Research UK before taking on your role at the Alzheimer's Society. So what is it about chemistry and in particular research into society's two most feared conditions actually that attracts you? And where and when did your love of chemistry begin and actually I've just realized I haven't said hello (laughs) (laughs) hello Pippa how are you (laughs) very well Um, and welcome to well I know now Um, thank you so much yes but when did it but 
did it all start for you, this, you know, interest in chemistry and then particularly these two conditions? Yeah, I mean, I, when I was younger, I must admit, I used to love reading about books around science, chemistry, physics, maths, and they were always the ones that I found interesting. So I think I always had my head in a, in a book learning about things like that. And so it was kind of natural going through school that they were the subjects that I gravitated towards. Uh, my dad was an engineer. My brother was brilliant at maths. And actually, because they were so good at maths and physics, I think I went towards chemistry because they were the <laughs> questions they away. couldn't answer. Yeah, I, I could answer those and they couldn't so I think that was why I picked that kind of particular science but I always loved all the sciences I love the idea of of the research is you're never quite sure but you're always trying to find out or you're always trying to learn more and you have to be willing to change your opinion depending on the latest evidence and theories and I think a good scientist is always willing to look at what it says now and say actually I'm changing my thoughts and my opinions based on the evidence I now have in front of me and I kind of love that continual learning so yeah mm. it kind of went from there I, I enjoyed it uh, I, I found mm. it fascinating so when you enjoy something and you find it fascinating I think you kind of gravitate towards it and, and yes. enjoy that so that's why I ended up doing chemistry at undergraduate and then a, a PhD in molecular kind of yeah chemistry trying to look looking at nature and being inspired by nature and some of the things you see and trying to copy it in a lab. And then that led me to my postdoc, which was in Switzerland, actually doing tissue engineering and using stem cells to try and help people after heart attacks kind of rejuvenate their hearts. And um, right. I also, I learned French and, and did a bit of skiing as well, which I enjoyed in Switzerland, which is another really great thing about academia. You can travel and meet new people and learn new things. So yeah, I think learning and new challenges, but I think I did some reflection um, when I was actually at Cancer Research UK and I kind of thought that health research and the charity sector, those three things are really, really important to me and, and to do something that I consider a passion, not a job. And I, I'm very lucky that I love the job I'm doing now. I love the job mm. I did at Cancer Research UK and I, I really consider them a, it's a pleasure and a privilege to work for an amazing organisations working on some of the biggest, as you say, health challenges facing the planet. And I think dementia mm. is the biggest health challenge currently. Mm, well, I think we're all lucky that you're doing it. I can hear the passion in your voice. And you said one interesting thing to me beforehand, because I ask all my guests, you know, what they know now, you know, along with the theme of the podcast, that they didn't before dementia entered their lives in whatever form it did, whether it's, you know, medically, research, personally. And you, I haven't really heard it put like this. And of course, I understand completely what you're saying, that dementia is the biggest killer in the UK, which some people may, may not realise, but it is. And also that Cancer and dementia are the two most feared conditions. But what was interesting about what you said, Richard, was that people fear dying of cancer. People fear living with dementia. Just you talk about that a bit. I thought it was a really interesting observation. Yeah, and I think it was one of the things, obviously, because I, I worked in cancer for a long time and that there's a lot of great progress and a lot of work to do. But when I was looking for my next role, it was really obvious to me it had to be dementia. So when you start looking into it and the underinvestment we've had in research, it hasn't been invested in for decades enough. And mm. in 2012, the UK government was spending kind of £25 million on dementia, which then was still one of the biggest killers. And mm. at the Alzheimer's Society, obviously we work a lot supporting people living with dementia. And we do some surveys and checking in some of the things that they need us to work on and they really mm. need us to focus on. So we're supporting them in the best way possible. And it's one of the things that came back from one of these surveys that people are scared of dying of cancer but living with dementia. And mm. it, it really, it's something that really hit home with me. Mm. And I, I mm. completely understand mm. 
that point of view, my granddad and my auntie both lived with Alzheimer's disease towards the end of their lives and, and seeing the effect it has on them and, and their loved ones and mm. uh, everyone in the family around it as these people progress in their disease. I, I think it's something that I think really resonates and it hasn't had enough attention and investment. Mm. It hasn't been a big enough mm. issue in the public landscape or the political landscape. And this is why it's been so great recently to get a lot of media attention on the Nanamab and the Kanamab and mm. speaking to people like yourself today. It makes such mm. a difference mm. that people mm. realise some of the facts mm. and actually think, well, now is the time and it really is now the time more than ever we've got a chance to really tackle Alzheimer's disease and make a massive difference to people living with this condition. Mm. Well let's turn to those two drugs now then lacanamab which you know sort of had the breakthrough a bit earlier in the spring and then as I heard Kate Lee you know your chief executive saying nothing for a while and then in well less than six months I think you know we've had these two big breakthroughs with these drugs which is really Great. So now just explain to everybody, as I sort of said in the intro, really, you know, how exactly they will help people beyond my rather simplistic sort of outline in the intro, when they might be available, what it will cost, you know, and the side effects. And and actually, I think this is the kind of million dollar question. Can the NHS cope with what it's going to need to have to do to deliver these drugs? There's a lot of big questions in there. Sorry, Richard, just break that down, actually, and do one at a time. Maybe how they really help people, and then I'll keep prompting you on the next bit. (laughs) No, they're all brilliant questions, and we're working on some of the answers now. We don't have all the answers, but definitely go through that. So, I mean, as you rightly said, so Alzheimer's disease is the the biggest cause of dementia, but dementia is an umbrella term Mm. for a group of diseases of the brain. So the first point, of course, this is not getting old. This is not an inevitable part of ageing. And Alzheimer's Society ran a campaign last year, part of Dementia Action Week, saying it's not called getting old, it's called getting ill. Mm. You get dementia when you have a disease of the brain mm. and, and your brain weighs about 120 grams less at the end of these conditions than it did at the beginning. So it's definitely one of those things that is an illness, oh. it's a disease. Just repeat so, that. Sorry, I've never heard that fact either. Of course, it is, a, it is eating away at the brain, so it would do. But can you repeat that, how much less it yeah. weighs? Absolutely. So it's a disease of the brain. And so what happens is it starts killing your neurons due to those Mm. plaques building up in your brain. You actually lose brain volume. Mm. And so actually at the end of your journey, we typically find people's brains weigh about, it's about 140 grams actually less than before. Um, And so actually your brain does shrink. It doesn't lose brain volume. And that that is why you have the symptoms that we Mm call in this umbrella term dementia mm. and Alzheimer's disease is the biggest cause of that like you rightly said about 60 mm. percent of all cases have done that Alzheimer's disease was actually discovered almost 120 years ago I know. now it's just shocking and that isn't it absolutely so long ago we discovered the first plaques that started building up in, in a woman's brain and it, so it's taken 120 years and in mm. that time we've seen very limited progress mm. and mm. In my opinion, and I'm, I'm heavily obviously biased towards research, I believe research will cure almost anything if mm, given enough mm. time, effort and investment. A dementia and Alzheimer's disease hasn't had that investment. Like I say, mm. in, in 2012, the UK government was spending mid £20 million pounds on, on research into one of the biggest killers in, in the country. And there's a whole list of reasons why maybe. But what we have never seen and what we I begin to see now is like you rightly say these treatments that slow down the progression of disease what we've seen up until now are treatments that mask the symptoms so you could almost call them something like a painkiller if you break your leg you take a painkiller and that can help 
but only for so long and you're not fixing the broken leg with the painkillers you're just mm. masking the symptoms and mm. that's that's kind of what we've had and if you take the analogy of sometimes people use like something like a burning building where you have a spark that starts everything and you have the flames going on the symptoms are basically like opening the window and letting out some of the smoke they mm. do help for a limited period of time but they're not putting the damn thing down the fire they're not putting mm. down the spark mm. what we now have with these treatments and let's say after 120 years we've never had a single one come through we've now had two in yeah like you say six six twelve months they dampen down the fire they actually slow the progression of alzheimer's so mm. as you again rightly said in your introduction they're immunotherapies so they highlight these plaques to the immune system because we all have amyloid in our brain we all have tau in our brain these proteins that build up they perform in, in vital roles we need them but for most of us we're able to clear the amyloid out of our brains and with Alzheimer's disease it starts accumulating mm. more and more into these plaques these insoluble plaques mm. and what these uh, treatments do is at different stages of the process of amyloid building up they highlight the amyloid to the immune system and mm. help your immune system clear them and that is why it slows down progression and one of the things we've learned and even from the treatments that have failed over the last 10 years I always try and say that actually even though a treatment or a clinical trial didn't hit its endpoints we still learned something mm. and what we have learned from these treatments in the last 10 years is it's not the total volume of amyloid you remove it's how quickly you remove it to certain levels so every trial we've ever had that has removed amyloid to below 20 centiliters at six months mm -hmm. has led we believe to clinical benefit so it's actually how quickly you remove the amyloid from the brain and we've only learned that because of all the trials that haven't hit their endpoints do you mean worked. you've got to remove the 20 percent within six months or you've got to sort of get it you've got to get the total volume down to the 20 within six months, within six months the right. the trials that have done that have all led to benefits and the trials when you look that haven't seen mm. clinical benefit have all missed that point so mm. we now understand a little bit more mm. so going forward why i'm even more excited and say this is the first step on a journey a long journey mm. but the first step is really important it's because we're beginning now to understand it's not the total volume it's how quickly we can remove it down mm. to a certain level mm. and so these two treatments both do that and as you rightly said um the calamab showed the 27 percent slowing and denanumab at 36% slowing in the progression mm. um, of Alzheimer's disease. But there were some nuances there. Certain subpopulations benefited more, some less. Okay, just just tell us one or two of the what benefited more or less. Yeah, so in denanumab in particular, what we saw is people with high amyloid, but mm -hmm. low tau. So tau is another protein that mm -hmm. builds up in the brain, forms what we call tangles. And actually, if you have high amyloid, but low tau, we actually saw slowing of up to about 60%. Um, so it really does depend. And I think this is what we're going to have to work out now. Mm -hmm. Who are the people that most respond to this? Mm -hmm. There are certain people with certain genetic mutations around the mm -hmm. APOE4. And again, people with the APOE4 mutation, again, they don't respond quite as well. With, with the what? The something mutation, did you say? Yeah. So the APOE4 is it's a famous uh, or well-known mutation where if you have certain variants of this gene, then you are more likely to get Alzheimer's disease when you're younger and uh, you respond less well to the treatment. So again, part of these trials when I were looking at people trying to see again, are there subpopulations that respond better or and, and uh, respond worse? Because we'll get into the conversation, I'm sure, around the side effects and the NHS being ready. But for me, one of the critical things is allowing patients 
to make an informed decision mm. on what they want to do because mm. there are side effects mm. but in the same way we look at patients in cancer with chemotherapy some patients decide they want chemotherapy to extend their life and they want to go through that to live for one two years longer some decide they don't want to go through chemotherapy and they want to enjoy a better quality of life for a shorter period of time that's the patient's choice and i think we may get to a situation without some disease we find out exactly how well these drugs may work for you, some of the side effects, some of the things you have to do to get given these treatments. And some people may decide they don't want that and some people decide they do. And I think that's their choice. And I think that's a really important distinction we now need to make. Yes, absolutely. Well, so tell us about the side effects as you've mentioned them. Yeah, absolutely. So both these treatments remove amyloids very quickly. And that's, like I say, one of the things we think is key to these drugs actually working. And in fact, they remove the amyloid so well that within six to 12 months, most of the people on this trial wouldn't have actually been eligible for starting it because they had so little amyloid. Yes, in I brain saw now. that. I mean, that's a very quick turnaround, isn't it? I was amazed. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that, just before I get into one of the things that really excites me, what we're essentially doing now is waiting for people to develop symptoms, whether that be mild cognitive impairment mm. or early Alzheimer's, which is the two groups of people that benefit from this treatment. It has to be very early on in our disease mm. uh, or even so, at so that it does, but, but it doesn't have to be Alzheimer's then. It can be mild cognitive impairment, which occurs sort of out with the Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, so, so if you have MCI, you don't have dementia, um, but you um, do have some kind of impairment further than we'd expect it for someone of, of your age, potentially. And so people at MCI stage were the people actually benefited most from this treatment. Really? But absolutely. So why is so, that, given that you are dealing with amyloid and tau plaque? So a lot of people with MCI, uh, and the number varies quite a lot in the literature, so I can't give you an exact number mm, of how many mm. people with MCI progress into sure, Alzheimer's disease, yeah, it yeah, seems to fine. vary. But if you have MCI and you have amyloid, you're eligible for this trial, going on that trial, those people seem to be slow. And, for, and that makes a lot of sense to me in, in one sense, because we know, and again, this was Alzheimer's Society research that not only led to these drugs being developed, our funding helped fund John Hardy to develop the amyloid hypothesis. We also connected him to Carol Jennings, who's now one of our vice presidents, and she's actually the one that came forward with a big family history of Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And the two together came up with the amyloid hypothesis, which said to the world, hey, if you move amyloid, we think this could make a difference to mm. people. And that's been proved true. When was that? So that was in the 80s, uh, late 80s, early 90s. So I remember that. that piece yeah. Of research. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of discussion around the amyloid hypothesis and whether it's right or wrong. And I think what we'd say is it's always been more complicated than just mm -hmm. purely about amyloid. Mm -hmm. But what we've now seen from these treatments is removing amyloid, just like John said, does make a difference to people. And we're delighted we played a role in that in the Alzheimer's Society. But we also funded another piece of research with someone called Nick Fox. And what he showed is amyloid starts building up 20 years before symptoms. So we now have drugs that remove amyloid, but we're waiting at this moment until it's built up so much that it's causing symptoms. It started to reduce the brain volume. What if we gave these treatments before symptoms when we know amyloid starts building up in people's 40s. I think there's a really exciting future potential here that instead of waiting for the symptoms to develop, we could be removing amyloid before. And what does that do? We don't know, but those trials have already started where we're giving them earlier. One of the biggest barriers to giving people these treatments even earlier than we commonly want to is not only the diagnosis, but the side effects and touching the side effects first. So removing amyloid this quickly from people's brains affects people in different ways, but two of the most common ways were kind of swellings in the brain and microbleeds. 
And we're not entirely sure why. It could be because we were moving amyloid so quickly and amyloid is building up so much. It leads to, um, in the blood vessels as well, it could lead to leakage. We're not entirely sure, but we know that does happen in about a third of people, just under a third. But most people are asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. So they don't have any symptoms, but on a on an MRI on a brain scan, we can see some of this happening, and it needs careful monitoring. Mm. For about one to two percent of people, that does lead to symptoms, and they can be really serious. These swellings mm. and these brain bleeds, and there were a couple of deaths, I think three deaths in denanumab. How big was the trial? So it was about eighteen hundred people. So one or two deaths out of eighteen hundred. Yeah, absolutely, and. And in the lecanemab data, initially when they showed it, and I was in uh, San Francisco in November last year when they got the first uh, data that came out on that, there was actually more deaths in the control arm than there were in the active drug arm, but there has been more in the drug arm since. So what were the deaths from in the control arm then? I mean, how old are these people that are being... Well, ex- I mean, they have the people that have Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Some of them have other conditions. But mm. also when you're on a trial just living life, you can die for any number of reasons. Of course, of course. And so that you expect some deaths in, in both arms, but due to ARIA, which is it's this side effect that we call these brain swellings, these uh, micro bleeds, there were actually, when they first gave out the results, there was more in the control arm, but there had been more in the active drug arm since. So you require mm. a monthly, I mean, I think the recommendation is about every three months, an MRI scan mm, to mm. monitor you to make sure that you don't have these brain bleeds mm. or swellings. And if you do, you need really careful monitoring and you may have to come off them. Uh, after treatment in fact if you have those symptoms I think you do come off pretty quickly to ensure but we also know there are now some indicating factors if for example you're on blood thinners Mm -hmm. for the the Panamab data if you're on blood thinners you shouldn't be on these treatments and again we didn't know that there's also something around the Nanamab if you've had a stroke Mm -hmm. that increases your risk of getting ARIA on these Mm. treatments so again I think it's about that informed decision making we have to be clear there are serious potential serious side effects on these treatments and in order to monitor them you are going to have to come in for regular scans and so some people may not want to do that and some people may not be able to, but some may want to do that. And in which case mm. it's about telling the patient the realities of this trial, their potential benefits and their potential risks. But there are risks. And again, the NHS has to have the capacity to be able to not only give mm. these treatments, which are all IV in a hospital sure. properly, mm. but also then monitor the side effects. Yes, absolutely. I was just about to say, so the I was going to come on to the cost of the NHS, but first of all, I was going to sort of explain a little bit about what exactly is entailed in delivering these drugs. And it is quite, well, it's quite pricey because it is quite complicated. It's not like you can just administer a little white pill. People have to come in and it has to be intravenous. And what exactly would you have to do? Say we were down the line and Pippa Kelly's got you know, signs of some amyloid. And I think, yep, I'm going to go on to the nanomab. Tell me exactly what I would have to do as the person in that condition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the biggest one, the biggest barrier to my vision that I said at the beginning of making it a chronic condition and the kind of giving these treatments before you have any symptoms when amyloid is starting to build up. Mm, It's very interesting, isn't it? It's almost like in my brain, it could be like a statin yeah. Uh, where you have high cholesterol, you go on a statin. We don't know you're going to get a heart attack if you have high cholesterol, but it's increasing your risk. You've got an indicator, yeah, marker. Absolutely. Yeah. It could be the same with amyloid. You've got high amyloid. We don't know mm. you're getting dementia. You've got high amyloid because mm. people have high amyloid and don't have dementia, but we can remove the amyloid to do that. There are some big barriers. We can't do that at the moment, and one of them is delivery. So they, they were slightly different for lecanemab and denamab. I think lecanemab was every two weeks, denamab was every month. You have to go in and have an IV drip to receive the treatment. And obviously, some people have reactions to having an IV put in, which lots of people can do. They're not serious, but they are Mm. side effects of that. So you have to go in every two weeks or every month to have Mm. the treatment. 
And then, like I say, you'd have to go in every couple of months to have an MRI to ensure that the ARIA, are you getting ARIA and monitor So it's expensive, it's a lot of capacity, and obviously you have to go into hospital every couple of months to, to have the brain scanned, and not everyone wants to do that. So there absolutely is a lot of mechanisms that we need to look at uh, in the NHS. What I would say is there's been other conditions, MS and MND, and stroke, where new treatments come through, the system isn't ready. Mm. But what these new treatments coming through do is they remodel the system to ensure... I was about to ask you about that. Could we use this as an opportunity to bloom well, kick up the backside sort of thing? I completely agree. I, I think there, there are barriers, but you can see them as opportunities. And I definitely see this as a massive opportunity. This is not the end point. These are the first drugs, the first step in a long journey. And as we develop, I think the system needs to change. I think it will change. We're already having good interactions with government around setting up what is needed in order the capacity to do that. I mean, one of the things we haven't mentioned uh, yet, which is really important, is diagnosis. Uh, don't worry, that's in huge letters up here. I've just written it down because <laughs> it is big on my list of things. We haven't yet mentioned it. But I know that you and Kate Lee both were very, very clear about that. The big key yeah. to all this is early diagnosis and as yet in fact i had an i had a quote from kate about this sort of tiny percentage of people or did i use it in the intro two percent two percent yeah who would actually be getting their diagnosis early yeah, yeah I... currently only two percent of people in england and wales receive their diagnosis through the specialist investigations needed to be eligible for these treatments i mean that's the sort Absolutely. of thing oh no yeah, and I, I, so I, that's, I mean, so even if, forget and the delivery and the side effects, which needs careful managing and, and do need just to work with government and, and change those things. But as we mentioned, to be eligible for these treatments, you need to be at MCI or early Alzheimer's stage. Mild cognitive impairment. just Mild cognitive yeah. impairment. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Even need to have mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's disease to benefit from these treatments. That's where these drug trials are targeted on people. But you also, of course, crucially need evidence of amyloid buildup in your brain because these treatments remove amyloid. And some people don't have amyloid and do have dementia. And some people have high amyloid and don't. So you have to be able to prove both of these things, an early diagnosis of either mild cognitive impairment in Alzheimer's disease and you have high amyloid in your brain. And there's only two ways currently to prove someone has amyloid in their brain. That's either a PET scan, of which we have some of the worst capacity in the developed world, or a CSF, so it's kind of like a lumbar puncture, taking some fluid from your spine. And they're the only two ways of proving you have amyloid in your brain. And we do not commonly have enough capacity to do that for lots of people early enough. And that's why we get to this number of only 2% of people coming to getting an early and accurate specific diagnosis with amyloid that could benefit. So we not only already know at Alzheimer's Society that an early and accurate diagnosis helps improve your quality of life. You know what you have, you know your prognosis, you can get the care and support in place before the symptoms get unmanageable for that individual and, and the family members. So we know it improves quality of life already. But now with these treatments coming, we know that earlier diagnosis will be more important than ever because the people with Alzheimer's disease, with amyloid, will have an option of a treatment that will slow down their progression. So diagnosis is Alzheimer's society's key uh, strategic priority at the moment. And it's something we're really working hard with government to make dementia a priority and to really focus on what they can do to improve the diagnosis in this country. Mm. And what sort of reception are you getting in government? Yeah, I've got to say, it's so really good at the moment. I think there's a lot of challenges for the NHS and for government. Mm. But I think with DMTs coming through again, they present an opportunity we've never had before where we can slow down the progression of the biggest killer, one of the biggest killers in the UK. And I, I think that opportunity is massive. There is a lot of work to do. Mm. And we are having good conversations with government and with 
MHRA and NICE, which are the two bodies which have to review this data independently and prove it's safe and effective. Mm. And then, of course, the NHS can afford it and get it into the system and mm. the system being ready. So we're having really good conversations. Like I said, we've never had an opportunity like this ever before in Alzheimer's disease. But there are big challenges and um, mm. it is going to take time. But what we don't want to be in this situation in a couple of years' time where people have access to these treatments, but only 2% actually mm. can mm. get access mm. to them. And we have the opportunity now to that change That would be tragic, that. wouldn't it? I mean, it really would. But Absolutely. So there are also, and this is one of these things, isn't it? And because of the way politics works, you get these four-year cycles, of course, or whatever, you know, the cycles of government. There will be, in the longer term, cost benefits. Whether You might have to outlay... I mean, I've got to note here that lecanemab, which has been licensed in, in America, I've actually put down costs around the equivalent of 21,000. But what is that per what? 21,000 per annum? Must be more than that, surely. It's, it's $25,000 per patient per year. Per patient per um, year. In okay. America. So yeah. that's what they've got to. But obviously their arrangement and their agreement may be different to what yeah. we, would, we would manage The whole health system but, is so different, isn't it? Absolutely. But that's the agreement they've reached already. But of course, that's the cost of the drug. What was interesting from the difference between the canamab and denanamab is that in denanamab at the phase two trials in particular, there was some interesting data that actually when people came off denanamab, the amyloid protein didn't start building up as quickly again. Mm. So you may not even have to stay mm, on these treatments mm, forever. Mm. You may be able to come on and off. And again, this is what we're beginning to try and understand. And, mm. and we need more evidence and more data to look into this. But it may not mean you stay on them forever. It may mean you go on for a couple of years and come off. And again, that could help the healthcare system and, and the costs. But I think one of the things that we need to look at is, that, yeah, absolutely, the costs of the drug. But I don't think in the mid 20,000s, if, if we get a similar deal to what the US have done, that's not a, an unbelievable number. Mm. That's a number that I, I would hope we'd be able to work with. But there are, of course, the cost of setting up the healthcare system, as we talked about mm. that diagnosis. Just, just to, you may not know this, but just a matter of interest, do you know how that compares with, say, a drug that somebody with, you mentioned MS earlier, or some other sort of neurological condition how would that compare if we do come out around that sort of 25,000 per patient per yeah I I don't know the numbers for the different diseases I know from working in the cancer field there are treatments that are more expensive than that that get signed off but I think one of the considerations isn't and this is the conversations having now with NICE so the mm. look at the cost it's mm. not only the cost of the drug it's the cost of the change to the healthcare system needed to deliver it yes. so those factors are considered and so while the cost of the drug may not be as high as others that have been approved mm. the fact that as we talked about we may need more diagnosis equipment whether mm. we do need more mm. MRI capacity those costs are considered yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. And just for anybody who doesn't know, of course, you've got NICE, who is the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence and the regulatory body. And then it also has to go through the Medical and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, doesn't it? MHRA. So, you know, it's got that as well as the cost. It's then got, are they, they decide basically, don't they, whether this is a goer. Yeah, and it's really important. So those considerations already started. So the MHRA will tell us whether it's effective and whether it's safe, and they will look at the data, and they are the experts. And so it's really important that we allow them the time and the space to make an independent decision. So if anyone, when they are approved, everyone knows they've been approved and they are safe and they are effective with the caveats of the side effects that, that all treatments have, as we've already discussed. And then NICE will absolutely will look at the cost and the systematic cost of the NHS. And again, it's really important that they make their decision 
decisions independently without pressure to look at the data. Um, and we, we hope and we believe those decisions will come in late 2024, early 2025, which means mm. patients, if they're approved, big if, but if they're approved, could be available in, in, in 2025 to patients, we hope and believe on, on the NHS. Two years. We hope so. If they get approved, that's the mm. process. It takes about a year. And mm. I think they are being prioritised and the MHRA and NICE are going to look at them and we want them to make a decision as quickly as possible. Mm, mm. But we need to allow them the time and space yeah, to make to, the right yeah. decision. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, well, fingers crossed. I mean, that's massive, isn't it? It's it's huge. And like I said, I, this is the beginning of a journey. It's going to be bumpy. But I think what these treatments have done is two things. One, they've proved that we can modify the disease. They have shown unequivocally that we slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease and not everyone always thought we could do that. They have yeah. shown that. Yeah. They've also shown what well, I think is really important for both because there is an important discussion around how meaningful is this data for real people? What difference will this make? Yes, we can remove amyloid, mm. but what difference will that make to people? And it's a really important discussion. It's a very good, yes, very good point, Richard. Yeah, and in Lecanemab, what they did, they, they had a couple of different measures, particularly on carer quality of life. And by one of those measures, carer quality of life was increased by 56% okay. of people. So again, these are measures of surveys going around to carers. Why? Why did the carers' quality of life increase by over 50%? Yeah, really good. So like I said, there are lots of different measures, but I get what one of the, obviously the things is because the disease is progressing slower, the person is staying um, more cognitively able for longer meaning there's less kind of burden on the carer to start caring and picking up more of the responsibilities mm. because mm. the disease progresses slower. Mm-hmm. So that was really good. And Denanumab, they had a look at actually the person living with dementia and slowing of some of their symptoms by around 40%. And they included things like hobbies, talking about current affairs, driving, managing mm. your finances. Mm. So it's not only removing a protein from the brain and, and then having that as a what we call a biomarker, a sign yes. in the body that something's happening. Both of these treatments in slightly different ways looked at the difference it would make to actual individuals. And it showed, on average, it improved the quality of life for carers and it meant that people with Alzheimer's disease were able to carry on doing things for longer. And and also in Denanumab, almost, it wasn't quite, but it was almost double a number of people hadn't even progressed on some of the measures after a year compared to the, the control. So we are seeing some of that and we'll see more. But again, these are the first ones. Mm. The system's going to start getting ready, starting diagnosing people earlier. And even if you don't have Alzheimer's disease, an earlier diagnosis is good for you. And if you mm. do, you then have the option of these treatments that for you hopefully slow it down. So this is the beginning, the first steps in a really long journey, but those steps are really important. And mm. I think that's why we're we're so excited at Alzheimer's Society. And also very interesting that you put in there in, into your sort of quality to research the, the the carer the family the people around the person with dementia I mean this is so important isn't it with dementia and until it hits you really personally I think that that is quite difficult to explain to people the impact of a diagnosis on one person the ripples it has on the family and actually on a wider circle of friends and and so that's incredibly important and and another you know thing that you said to me which I think I often think, well, perhaps these things are fairly well known, but then I talk to people and actually, of course, they are. They are by, they are by you know, people who are interested in the sector. But one in three people born today will develop dementia. I mean, one in three, that's a very high percentage of us. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. the biggest risk factor for developing dementia is, is old age. And as we become obviously an older society, it's happened. So there are about 900,000 people today living with dementia, and that's projected to, to rise to 1.6 million by 2040. This is just the UK. 
Just the UK, absolutely, yeah. And it's the cost of that. I mean, it, it's almost a hundred billion pounds because it's not only the person with dementia, but of course, absolutely often there's someone who has to take care and responsibility to give up work. Able, mm. Exactly, isn't able to work. So the cost of dementia, and of course, it spans the health and the care system in a way that many conditions do not. It's another whole conversation. <laughs> it is absolutely. So I, I think that's one of the things that when we talk about dementia and the difference we can make, if we can slow down the progression of disease the cost of society and and, and another one uh, the, the the cost of the whole society and then the kind of the impact on the health and the care system of dementia mm -hmm. is really second to none so by making a difference we really believe we can really look at those numbers and, and change things and that's on the kind of systematic society level never mind the individual i was about to say that's an argument for changing the system isn't it mm. absolutely we know more than a quarter of people in hospital beds have dementia yeah and often they're there because the care system outside wasn't able to find them what they needed and absolutely. they have to stay in hospital which is the, the worst care system place which there. is the worst place for them absolutely again so, so it, it's kafka-esque really yeah, absolutely. dementia hits so many of the problems in our health and care system. And we now have this opportunity to really, if we look at diagnosis, if we look at system delivery, if we tackle the stigma, which means that people don't always even go to the, the GP to get a diagnosis early mm. enough because they're worried about it or they think it's a natural part of aging. Mm. If we tackle some of these things, we now have an opportunity that we've never, ever had before mm. to really start making a difference to people's family life, but also a difference to the system that we live in. And I think that is an opportunity that is incredibly exciting. Mm. Um, and it starts with talking about it, breaking down some of the stigma, making it a priority for the UK government right now, and just making sure everyone realises some of the numbers, some of the stats, some of the realities. As you mentioned, people don't always seem to know. Mm. And I think it's our job to make sure people do hear that and understand the opportunity we have. Mm. Well, as we sort of draw to a close, one of the things we haven't talked about, and uh, I know the Alzheimer's Society, of course, are very keen to talk about, and we did touch on money, and, you know, that's always there, always there. <laughs> so you are having, in fact, I was thinking, I think it's the 20th anniversary of your first memory walk the Alzheimer's, because the first one was in September 2003, so my math is absolutely terrible, but even I can work out that that's 20 years ago. Um, so tell us about the memory walk across, you can do it England, Wales, Northern Ireland, well, presumably you can do it wherever you like, <laughs> no limit, is yeah. there? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, at the Alzheimer's Society, we're massively dependent on, on money and a lot of our money goes into research but of course a lot of it also goes into supporting people and families who have just been diagnosed and supporting them during their journey and our fundraising events are crucial to bring in money and obviously the memory walk is it's one of our most famous mm. uh, uh, one of our best opportunities to join together with thousands of people to do that there are 24 actually official memory walks and locations across England, Wales and Northern Ireland where you can join up with people but you're also more than welcome to kind of organise your own one mm. um, if you're not in one of those locations in order to do that and like I say it, it really does help raise vital funds that we put towards funding world-class research in order to do that this year actually takes place on the 2nd of September and then the last one is on the 8th of October you can find out these locations and find out if they're near you and I really encourage everyone to join in they're a really great day out with lots of other people. And it's, yeah, the walking distance ranges from two to 10 kilometres, depending on location, so for all abilities. And like I say, that, that money goes to help funding our world-class research to look at these treatments and develop new treatments, making sure that we can provide the best care for people, but also helping us support people going through a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or dementia themselves and making sure they've always got someone there to work with them. So they're absolutely vital. And if people can help out, we'd really appreciate them doing that. Thank 
Thank you, Richard. And presumably if they went to the Alzheimer's Society's website, they could be directed towards it. Absolutely. You'll see that there. Yes, it's our, our flagship event. And uh, yeah, more and more people are taking part, which is fantastic. And if you wanted to just sort of set up your own memory walk, can you contact the Alzheimer's Society and get some, you know, I remember I've done things and you can get pieces of promotional material and... Absolutely. Yeah, you can sign up and organise your own one where... Mm-hmm basically for whenever and whenever you want to do that. Mm. Uh, we ask if they're done by the 10th of October. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, if you contact us on our website, you can do that. Great, great. Well, Richard, thank you very much indeed. I've come away with, I think, more hope than I did. And I was very, very enthused by the news of these two drugs. And now you've put so well, so fluently, and I, even I can understand, and I'm so not a scientist, but I could understand what you were saying about it. And so I think there is a massive amount of hope. And I also like the way you know, you've explained very well how we can use this. There is a massive challenge to the NHS and to our health system and our social care system, but we can use this opportunity to really say, well, if we can help with this, if we can adjust the system so that they can better roll it out, then it will have a an impact on every aspect of the NHS and social care because it will relieve uh, the strain in other in other places. So, you know, I'm... Well, I'm encouraged and hopeful, and I know, as you said, it's a journey and it'll have its ups and downs, but... Um, Altogether, it's a massive breakthrough. And thank you for coming on and saying so clearly and describing it so well. An absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've always enjoyed my chats with the Alzheimer's Society's Chief Executive, Kate Lee. And so I was excited to talk to Dr. Richard Oakley, its research director, and he absolutely lived up to my expectations. It's brilliant to talk to someone with his deep knowledge of the disease someone who, very unlike me, has a scientific brain and really understands science in all its complexity, and then, crucially, is able to explain it clearly and simply. And my takeaways from our conversation are that with these two drugs, we are very much at the start of a long journey, along which we'll encounter some potholes and hazards, but the goal, the destination is there now. We can just about see it on the horizon, because what we know now, to coin a phrase, is that the drugs don't simply mask, but actually modify the disease. The big challenges, of course, are early diagnosis, delivery of the drugs, and cost. However, as a society, we should see these as a massive opportunity to reboot our health and social care systems, something that we absolutely need to do to ensure that they are fit for purpose as we move deeper into the 21st century with a population that is living longer. So I hope you found this episode as fascinating and encouraging as I did. And don't forget to sign up to the Memory Walk, launching in early September. You can find out how to do this and more about the event itself by going to the Alzheimer's Society's website, www.alzheimers.org.uk. Its homepage takes you straight to the Memory Walks near you, or as Richard said, you can organise your own and then contact the Alzheimer's Society for promotional materials and everything you need. Once again, the site to visit is www.alzheimers.org.uk. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.